his name we pray. Amen. If you have been with us uh, through the uh, book of First Peter, um, you will see and you will recognize this morning uh, that, that we are in a major transition point um, in this book. In fact, one uh, pastor said that you could really kind of insert, although that's dangerous to insert words into the Bible, but you could almost insert here um, in verse 11 a therefore, uh, meaning that that these two verses are, are these transition uh, verses in the text, and it's based on everything that has come before, and then we have these two verses, and then from these two verses you're going to get the next couple of weeks um, of how to live out our faith. And it's going to be challenging at some points, and there's going to be uh, questions that are raised and are questions that are answered. But what is so vitally important is that we really understand these two verses that we're covering today because they are foundational as Peter is moving into this question of how do we live? How do we live? They're foundational because I, I think if we, miss, if we miss what these two verses are saying and we just jump into the application that Peter is taking us to, then we're going to constantly be in this place that we don't want to be. That we're going to be trying to act or trying to do things according to our own will. We're going to be constantly trying to, to look at changing uh, our behavior, just white-knuckling it and changing our behavior. And what's really going on is an outside conformity without any kind of inner change. And this is what we're going to see this morning. That in these verses, that Peter, as he lays out this foundation, he takes us through this just, this just awesome chain of describing who we are. Describing who we are changes the way that we can battle internally the, the, the lust and the war that's going on inside of us and how that leads to this behavioral change. And that behavioral change can lead to others coming to know Christ, us living like we are supposed to live. And so in other words, it's putting off this idea that we just have this behavioral modification and that we live in a certain way so that others can look at me and say, hey, look how good of a job Lewis is doing of living the Christian life. No, that's not what we're supposed to be about. The real goal is that we as Christ followers will live out who we are in and through the spirit that is in us. Now, as we meet this, these two verses in the Greek, it's one sentence. And again, like I said just a minute ago, it lays out three things. But before we jump into that, I just want to ask you, I want to lay out something and I want us to think about, I want us to think through just for a moment, who are you? And, and how you answer that question, who are you? How does that determine how you live? It's interesting. We all know and have probably heard of stories of politicians or athletes or uh, people who are famous uh, who might get pulled over by the police for speeding or for breaking a law. And one of the first things out of their mouth, and probably all of us have seen this on tape and on video, is, do you know who I am? 
Meaning that they are above the law. They're above the standards set for society. Recently, um, there was a story, and I don't know if it's true or not, but apparently there is a um, man who, um, over the Easter weekend, came in contact with a very famous news anchor uh, who just days before had announced to the world that he had contracted the COVID-19 virus. And this man, on his broadcast, had over and over again talked about how we should social distance, how we should uh, stay in our homes, how we should be mindful of others. But yet this, this man uh, said that he ran into this anchor out in the open riding his bicycle with a group of people standing at a park in New York. And when this man confronted him, the words out of his mouth were something along the line with, I think some other expletives of, do you know who I am? Meaning, he was above the message that he was proclaiming. Now this morning, as we jump into our text, it's very clear that Peter, as he is writing this, and as he is, and this message is circulated, that he wants us to know who we are. Let's just dip back into a couple of verses that Gary covered last week and think about how these verses tell us who we are. Look at verse 7, or verse 5 in chapter 2. You also, you are living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And again in verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. And then, uh, probably most notable, listen to verses 9 and 10. And notice what Peter says. He's saying, this is who you are. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. And in verse 10, you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is who you are, and we're going to look Peter continues in a moment, we're going to look at, he also goes a little deeper into that. But what I want you to think about is if that is you, if you are a follower of Christ, and this is how it's described, as this is who you are, how then should you live? And I'm just going to take us on a very brief tour of what we're going to get over the next month or so. Is because of who you are, this is how you should live. And for some of you, this may be unexpected. In verse 13 of chapter 2, it says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority. Again, in verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. In verse 21 of chapter 2, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow His footsteps in suffering. In chapter 3, verse 1, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of 
their wives. In verse 7, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way. In verse 8 and 9, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. And then lastly, and we could go on, but look at verse 14 again, talking about suffering in chapter 3. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. And so what I want you to see and what Peter is bringing us to is that Peter has laid out the gospel. He's laid out what our inheritance is. He's laid out who we are in Christ. And he's defined us in these great, magnificent terms. And then as he gets into this idea of how to live as a Christian in this world, we are to leverage who we are for submission. For suffering. Now, this morning we know that this context in which this book was written is that he was writing to a people who were uh, not from uh, where they were. They were strangers, they were aliens, they were sojourners as we saw in chapter 1. But I think, I know that as this letter was circulated among Christians, and as we have read it, the other theme that, 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 that comes out of this text is this, we too can identify like these people who were living in a foreign land, and Peter is driving home and using this metaphor to say, you too, all of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, can relate because you are a people who are not at home, that this is your temporary residence. And, and as we get into this section, he is going to bring out the tension and he is going to teach us how we can get to a place to act in the ways in which God would have us act. So, so as we look at this, again, I want to ask you the question. How does the world see you? As a follower of Christ, as a Christian, how does the world see you? Do they see no difference in who you are? Are you just like they are? Is there no difference between you and your unsaved neighbor? Is the only difference between you and your unsaved neighbor is that you do something on Sunday morning that he or she doesn't? Do you use, and, and unfortunately this is a very common thing in our society in America, do you use your Christianity for selfish gain? You can turn on the TV this morning and see men and women in pulpits that are using, leveraging their faith for selfish gain, to gain health, to gain wealth, to gain status, to gain prosperity. Does the outside world view you as fake, view you as saying one thing and doing another. The key for us today, and the thing that I've been challenged with through this study, is that I hope that as we read and as we dig into this text, that one of the things that God, through His Spirit, does in your life is to 
continues to conform and transform you into who you are. That from a real heart change, that through that, then our behavior follows. And so we're going to see that this begins with this internal work that then lives, comes out of us. So let's jump into the text this morning. And I want you to notice again, as I've already stated, uh, Peter again begins with who we are in verse 11. And this first word in the NASB, and it's translated differently in different translations, but this first word, beloved, this is not a throwaway term. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we read phrases or we read words and they become kind of throwaway terms. But Peter is, Peter is pointing towards something here. As he calls them beloved, what he's talking about is that you belong. You belong to God. You've been adopted. You've been accepted. You are the people of God. You are new. You have been changed. You've been taken out of this world. You've been taken out of the the family of Adam as we talked a couple of weeks ago. You've been taken out of that world and you've been transformed into the kingdom of God. You, if you are a Christian, are His beloved. This is hugely significant. Because what Peter is telling us, what Peter is telling us, Notice in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Those who are God's beloved are aliens and strangers. I love the the picture that comes with the word uh, alien. Um, When we think of it in our modern minds, we think of little green men or maybe Alf if you're old enough. Um, But in, in, in this context, this word, the way, it's, uh, the way Peter puts this word together, is this word actually literally means alongside a house. And so the, the connotation in, in the reader, in the original context, would have been that this is someone who lives alongside a house or who lives among people who are not their own. They are an alien. They are strangers. The force that Peter is trying to put upon his reader is that you are different. You don't belong. And he's not saying this in a negative context, in a negative way. He's saying this in a joyous way. Beloved, you don't belong. You are one of God's children. You belong to His family. While you're in this world, you are a stranger and an alien amongst the people that are of this world. And it's only, it's only, get this, it's only on this basis, beloved, as aliens and strangers, I urge you. So the foundation is who you are, based on who you are, now Peter comes in and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, because of this, I urge you. And notice the first thing that happens, and I think it's intentional, the movement here. So the first thing is, based on who you are, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. We could very easily spend the remainder of our time together this morning talking about this half of this sentence. 
But I want to try to get through uh, verses 11 and 12. And so I want to point out a couple of things. First is this. First is this. We must be aware that if we are a believer, if we have been transferred into God's family, that there is a war that is taking place inside of us. This wording, wage war, in the original Greek means to serve as soldiers. And I love this picture because it gives us an idea of what's going on inside of us that while we are here, although we are already a part of God's people, we are not yet what we will be. And in this fallen state, in this body, redeemed though we are, as we're in this world, it's almost like there are little soldiers inside of us waging war against our soul. Notice this. Notice the contrast. Just a little bit earlier in the first chapter, verse 8 and 9. Notice this. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Notice, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, in contrast with this, in verse 11, the fleshly lust which are waging war against your souls. Brothers and sisters, in this world, there is a battle and it is internal. And one of the weapons of Satan against us is to try to get us to ignore that there's something going on inside of us. And, and if we do that, what I'm telling you is that the lust of this flesh, the lust of the flesh, have their way. So we must know and we must be aware that there is a battle inside of us. And notice where the battle is taking place. It's taking place with our desires, with our lust. As we were in the book of Romans, one of the things we talked about quite often, and this is important to note, is that as a Christian, when we become a Christian, the power of sin in our life is defeated. But the presence of sin in our life still remains. That we are changed, but we are also being changed and we're not what we will be. There's one commentator, and I love the way that he says this. He says that these, this battle, this, this, this internal battle of the desires and the lust and the sins that remain are like a caged wild animal. And I think that is an apt description of what is going on inside of us. So while we are in this world, we are fighting internally. We're fighting with desires. We're fighting in, internally in our heart. I, I loved, and I was going to read it, but for the sake of time, I won't. But I, I, I would encourage you, and if you, if you haven't gotten this, I'll get him to send out a copy. But this week, uh, Damon writes a blog every week, and this week he wrote one about the heart uh, and, and about the battle internally. And it was just so great. And I just want to... Um, uh, commend that to you. But what you need to know is that there is a battle. It's internal. It's with the desires. It's with, it's with the lust. It's with our desires. And it's so that there is a pull on our heart to go in the wrong direction. And what we see from these verses is that this world 
and the things of this world internally are pulling us versus who we are in Christ because of what He's done. And there's this battle in our soul. But I want to give you the great news this morning. And the great news this morning is that Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain. To abstain. Meaning. Meaning. That because of who you are, you can abstain. Because of who you are as a believer, you can fight and win and be victorious. It is possible. And this possibility is found in the power of who you are in Christ. I, I want to read two verses. One that's here, or two sections of Scripture. One that's here in First Peter chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, notice this, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Because of Christ in you, and Christ as our example, and we saw Him suffer, he who knew no sin, who did not sin. It says, so we too live in the flesh, no longer after the lusts of men, but of the will of God. And you may ask this morning, and there's many ways, I think there are two ways to think of this at least, but you may be asking, well, Lewis, what are the lusts of the flesh? And in Galatians chapter 5 is the best example of, of the lust of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. And so I'm going to read, starting in verse 16 in Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Notice again, as, as Paul is talking in the book of Galatians, that they are against one another. There is a war. Starting in verse 18 again. But, you're not, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with, the, with its passions and its desires. I think another way that we could um, look at this when we're looking eternally, internally at the war that is waging in us is that any impulse, any impulse that rails against what Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls us to 
in submission to authorities and to submission to masters and to, to doing good and living in a certain way, any impulse away from that is the lust of the flesh. It's a desiring for something that is, that is this worldly. Now, we've got to be willing to go to war. And, and I just want to say three things to this very quickly on how to do this. Number one, number one, is that we are to fight this war from a place of victory. Knowing that because of the work of Christ on the cross that we are victorious. And so when we are battling against the lust of the flesh, we are not battling in such a way that we are defeated. We are victorious in Christ. Secondly, there are two major strategies that I think we see in this text and in this chapter. The first one we get from this verse, and that's to abstain, to run away from, to alienate ourselves from. I think this is what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about sin, and he said that we should that our desire to overcome sin should be so strong that we're willing to cut off our hand or pluck out our eye. The second strategy, which I think is related, and if we had time, we would just unfold this in a greater extent, but so the first strategy is to abstain. The second strategy is to replace. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit, and all hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. Notice we could very much categorize those things as the lust of the flesh, or the results of the lust of the flesh. Notice what we are to replace that with. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And so we replace those ungodly desires, those desires of the flesh, we replace that with a longing for the Word of God, knowing that the desires of the flesh lead to death, lead to ineffectiveness, lead to us being not who we are, but the desires, the pure milk of the Word leads to life everlasting, eternally. And again, what we replace it with, look at verse 9 again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who have called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. And so when we feel that pull, when we feel that earthly pull, one of the things that we go to war against those lusts and those desires and that we say to them is, that's not who I am. I'm going to focus on the excellencies of Him who has called me out of that into something else. I no longer live for this world and the things of this world. I'm going to change my focus from self-gratification to the things of God. The thing that brings me everlasting joy. My purpose. The, and what we see that is evident here is the gospel frees us to live in this way. So that we fight any impulse inside of us that would lead us to the world, to, that would lead us to the idols of this world and finding our satisfactions there. And we fight like Paul who said that he disciplines his body. That we are to discipline ourselves and our mind and our body towards godliness. Again, we could spend much more time there, but time does not allow. 
what I want you to see is the flow of this argument. So who we are changes, gives us a position to fight the inward lust and the things going on inside of us, which leads to a change in behavior. Notice this, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This verse is is pretty straightforward, but I want to to just point out a couple of things to you. First, notice it says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Again, in our translations, in the the English wording, this word excellent is okay, but really there's this whole idea of, of, of superior beauty, of superior excellency of the highest nobility, the, the, the most wonderful. Um, and and this, is what we are, this is what our behavior is to look like. Now it's interesting, it's interesting that that's what our behavior is to look like among the Gentiles or the non-believers so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers. Now, I I think we get used to hearing stories that are true, that where Christians go, um, societies flourish. However, however, in, in this day and age, especially in the first century, Christians were seen as... Uh, rebel rousers. They were seen as, as, as problems. Um, they were seen as people who were rebelling against Rome. Most of us know the, the story of Nero and how it's thought that he burned the city but blamed Christians. And they were an easy target because they were looked at in that way. Christians in this day and age, there were all kinds of rumors uh, that they were cannibals. Uh, and you could see where not understanding the Lord's Supper, but it was, it was thought of that Christians were cannibal, cannibals, they were enemies of Rome, they were troublemakers, and um, all sorts of, of craziness. And so what Peter is saying is that to counter that, to counter these thoughts and this, the slanders, evildoers, you don't stand up and fight them, or you do, but the way you fight is not with fists and words, but with beautiful, excellent, moral, noble behavior. And and, and I think that we all know, and this goes without saying, movies, songs, stories, all relate to this, that goodness and nobility and high character is known even in the outside world. That non-Christians, I hear all the time, I was watching the NFL draft and there was a coach that I've, I've just heard wonderful, good things about and, and it's known by non-believers. They say, so-and-so, he is just a good guy. He is a good man. As Christians, we are to live in such a way that even outsiders would see our behavior and say, man, that is someone who has excellent character. This doesn't mean that we're never going to have a problem with society and that there's, there's never a time when we're not going to stand up and challenge the culture. And as we go through the next couple of weeks, we will talk about that. However, 
as we do that, I think our message is heard if our character and if the normal practices of our lives is, is living out who we are in Christ. And I, I want to say just a word of danger that I see in the, in the Christian world. Brothers and sisters, sometimes what identifies us as Christians is our stance against things versus our noble character. Far too often, if, if you watch the nightly news, as you watch syndicated TV shows, when they bring on a Christian, it's someone who is angry and who is railing against something. So, too often, if you were to go to the world and ask the world, uh, unbelievers, tell me about Christians, the only thing that they're going to say is they're going to talk about our stance against homosexuality, our stance against abortion, our stance, boom, 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 that they lay out our stances. And far too often they don't see the kind of character that we should inherit as we are taking these stances. Jesus Himself, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And I want to use one real quick example. I think early on, um, I, I was born in 1978, and uh, as I was coming up as a youngster, I would, uh, you know, one of the things that was going on in the church is still going on in the church is the church's response to Roe versus Wade, to the legalization of abortion. And so one of the things that happened back then is that there were a lot of sit-ins, and I remember as a young child and the church was organizing and doing that, and then hearing the horror of some of the things that Christians were doing to uh, young moms who were going into these clinics to get abortions and some of the ways that they, that they handled themselves. And there was a criticism that came out. Um, hey, you, you Christians can take a stand against abortion, but what are you doing to solve the problem? And I think there's been just a wonderful movement that we see in our church um, of Christians standing up and out of love out of noble character, out of a place where we know who we are and that this world is not our home, to where as churches and as individual families within churches, we have opened our arms to, to mothers who are experiencing crisis pregnancies and to children, so that these children have a home that they can go and live in. That's just an example. That's just an example of, as Christians, how we are to live in such a way that the world takes note. Notice, notice that this good behavior, that keeping that, so that in the thing in which, the slant, which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. How you and I act, how we live, our character, the things that we do, 
is the greatest witness that we have. What I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that we can just do good deeds and never open our mouth with the proclamation of the gospel and people will uh, be saved. That is not true. However, however, what is attested to over and over and over again when you listen to the testimony of men and women who have been who have been saved by God's grace, one of the things that you hear over and over again that attracted them was the noble behavior, kind of tore down some of the walls, that the Spirit used that to tear down some of the walls so that the people, the sinners, see something glorious and take note and listen to the message from that person. Beloved, aliens, Strangers, live out who you are. Remember that this world is not your home. That you were not saved for the good life now. But that we as Christians are citizens of another world where we will spend eternity with our Savior made whole. And while we are left here, we all have a job to do. As citizens of another kingdom, we are to be heralds of the good news. And that if you are a Christian, God has to draw others to Himself. And I want to end with a, a tragic story. Um, I've, some of you have heard me share this story, but it's a tragic story. I was one time talking to a Christian artist, um, and they were talking about all the work that they were doing, and, and uh, just, just I was going back and forth with him about the things he was doing, and um, he mentioned to me um, in this, in as he was talking about what he did, is uh, how expensive it was to uh, uh, to do what he was doing, which I thought was reasonable. You know, to to perform um, uh, or musically can be expensive. But as he started talking, what he was relaying to me is what was expensive was that on the weekends they would rent jewelry and rent cars. I, I got a little puzzled and said, well, why are you doing that? And what he told me was, to reach these young people, what they needed to see was that you were just as cool and successful as the non-Christian artist and that that would attract the kids in so that they'd, they'd hear the gospel. And as I challenged him, as I would challenge you, that is unbiblical. In fact, it's unkind. It's tricking young people to think that um, coming to Christ that you would gain these things that these young men didn't have themselves and that were not promised. When you read 1 Peter, we see that we're actually promised while we're in this world quite the opposite. And so what I would ask you and what I challenge my friend with 
Is there something about you that draws non-believers in? Are they suspicious about your kindness, your generosity, your love, your self-sacrifice? Or do they view you as just another one of the guys or gals? Quarrelsome, malicious, hypocritical, slanderous, after the same goals and aims of everybody else. So the question, the question that I have for you to end with, and the question that you're going to have to ask yourself before we go any further in 1 Peter, is are you willing to enter the war? Are you willing to enter the war internally, the battle for your soul, so that you will not be rendered ineffective, but for the joy set before you, for the joy set before you, that you will live a life that is pleasing to God, that will mean sacrifice, that will mean giving up your rights as a citizen in America. Are you willing to join in this? If you're not, these next couple of weeks and months will be challenging. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. This word is challenging and it hits home. But God, I am so thankful for it. I am thankful that we're not left to our own devices trying to figure out what's going on, but you clearly, through your apostle Peter, give us this word that what is going on inside of us until we get to glory, that there is a war that is being waged inside of us. But thanks be to you that because of your son, that war is won. And that while we do have indwelling sins, you have overcome the power of that and we do not have to obey its message. God, help us at Signal Mountain Bible Church to be a people who fight. Not with one another and not with the world, but who fight internally the lusts of this world, the passions of this world that dwell up inside of us. You have given us the victory. Help us to make and take that stand. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.